Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. This is the Words Matter Library. Our guest today is a journalist, podcaster, writer, producer, and radio host. His previous experience includes time as a correspondent for Radio Lab. He's also created and hosted radio shows for the CBC and WNYC. He's currently the host of the Vox News Daily Podcast Today Explained. Sean Ramasvaram, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you so much for having me. So first of all, congratulations. You and your team recently recorded your 400th Oof. episode of Today Explained. Thank you so much. So before we talk about the podcast, I want to talk about you and your background a little bit. You're from Canada. At 16, you moved to Los Angeles, and then you relocated from New York to Washington for your job at Vox. This is correct. So as a Canadian via L.A. and New York with a fondness for pop culture and museums, (laughs) uh, what's it like following the daily news cycle in Donald Trump's Washington? Oh, wow. That is a great first question. A hard-hitting first question. You know, it's overwhelming, but we try to not get too sucked into the Donald Trumpiness of it because it's important to remember that in Cote d'Ivoire, they're not even thinking about Donald Trump. And I, I picked that country specifically because I went there for a friend's wedding and it was like, oh, this is what life is like outside of the bubble of D.C. or New York, D.C. media or American politics. So I think Because we have listeners all around the world, we try to remember that, yes, we are here because there's a lot of things that need explaining right now as far as policies, as far as controversies. But we also try to keep in mind that, like, Old Town Road is quite a phenomenon. (laughs) Let's let's explain that. Or, hey, there's there's like a bunch of people in ISIS right now who are just hanging out in camps and these makeshift prisons. What's going to happen to them? There's like a lot to talk about. That one's vaguely Trump related but not exactly. So I think we sort of try to keep that frame of mind. Yeah, I think, well, you should then incorporate a travel schedule like to places, including Cote d'Ivoire, <laughs> to just constantly remind yourself about other things yeah. that are going on. That's just part of the job. Totally. That was actually before I had the job. But now I think it's it's really useful for us to keep that in mind. And, you know, living in D.C., the White House is here. Total the, bubble. The Trump Hotel is here. But also, like, the city just seems to continue on as if Donald Trump doesn't live here, I I find. Like, it's a diverse, progressive, super gay city. And, like, it doesn't feel like every element of life here has been touched by Donald Trump. Right. Definitely not 14th Street. And I like to remind my friends in New York about that because, like, oh, my gosh, what's it like, like, living, like, near the White House and, like, just being there with him? I'm like, he's from New York. (laughs) Like, his hotels and and buildings are all over this country, this city. Yeah. Take it easy, New York. (laughs) I want to talk about one of your early episodes and one that went viral. You and the team put together a song parody of Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire to explain the Mueller probe to your listeners. And it seems emblematic of your approach to the news and particularly political news. So explain how that particular episode came about and in general how you see presenting the news in an age when... Satire and parody seem threatened Mm. by almost daily absurdity in our current events. 
And then also as a lawyer, did you hear from Billy Joe, <laughs> Billy Joel or his attorneys? That is a great question. Okay, I'll take that one first. So okay. we've done many, many song parodies about the news. Yeah. And people always ask us, like, where's the Spotify playlist? Where's the vinyl on 180 gram? Where's the where's the collection of all these songs? And the reason we're not putting them out there to buy is because of course we would get immediately sued. A little bit, yeah. But we do check with our legal team at Vox every time we do on to figure out whether we've got the fair use argument. So for every parody you've heard, there's probably at least one you haven't heard because they're like, no way, guys. No (laughs) way. How do we come up with an idea to do that? I just figure there are many, many places everyone can go for their news. And especially in the podcast space, there's just infinity shows to download, to stream at any point. And so like, we want to give people a reason to choose our show. And so very early on, we knew that we needed to make a show that was distinct, that had like its own flavor. We're competing with the New York Times. We're competing with NPR. And so our approach was like, let's be human. Let's laugh at the news when it's absurd. Let's cry at the news when we can't take it. Let's make a show that's super easy to relate to. Like, let's not pretend we're the all-knowing voice of God news show, because that's not really Vox. Let's try and like take an approach to the news that's more like, wait, what happened? What does that mean? And so like explaining is the name of the game and we we try to do it every way we know how, which sometimes means, yeah, you got to sing Billy Joel. <laughs> I to like the, it. To the Mueller report or sing the Mueller report out to Billy Joel. Right. So, Sean, let me let me jump in and ask you first question. Do you have any friends that <laughs> do not have a podcast? Oh, wow. That is a great question. I do. But most of them have podcasts. That's good. That's good. I talked to someone who's a regular listener of yours because I wasn't familiar with the podcast. And I asked her, what is the podcast? And they described it this way, which is, Sean's like that guy, your friend, that whenever something happens, he's the smart guy who can explain it to you in a way that you understand. Is is that really the essence of the show? That is exactly the essence of the show. But your friend misspoke. I'm not the smart guy. I'm surrounded by the smart guys and gals who can explain the news to us. So like we're luckily positioned in that Vox newsroom in DuPont Circle and we can just go like, hey, Jen, can you explain this ISIS thing? Or like, hey, Seagal, what's going on with biohacking? And there's all these brilliant minds there and they make us all sound so smart on the show by helping us understand the news. So we are the vessel through which you get to hear from smart people. Now, I I lived in Washington for about 30 years, and I was taken by your description of Washington, which was there's the White House and there's the Trump Hotel. (laughs) I remember when people would say the White House, the Smithsonian, the Jefferson Memorial. Now it's the White House and the Trump Hotel. How do you get at on a daily basis the absolute nuttiness of what Trump does and what the people around him do? Well, we try not to talk about it every day. I think that helps. We're talking about it a little bit today. We definitely talked about it yesterday, but we're not going to talk about it tomorrow. I think it harkens back to what I said earlier about remembering that there are other things people in the world are are thinking about and talking about. So for us, we do Trump a lot, but we don't want our listeners to get tired of it and then tune out of everything we do because we do so much else. So I think for us, it needs to sort of reach a certain threshold, the hysterics, the back and forth, whatever it is. And a good example, I think, is the whole send her back week that we had there, where the week started on Sunday, I think, when the president was tweeting these sort of disparaging remarks about the squad, the so-called squad. 
And that was a huge controversy online, and it was eating up a lot of the news cycles on cable TV, but it wasn't really something we could spend 20 minutes explaining. It was the president rallying his base against these so-called socialists. And by Thursday or Wednesday, he held this rally in North Carolina, and all of a sudden when he brought up the squad, you had people chanting, send her back, send her back. And at that point, we're like, wait a second, this feels big enough now. Like this whole thing has culminated in this racist chant that harkens back to these racist tropes of the past in this country. I think we can dig into this. So sometimes it's sort of like waiting and seeing if the thing is actually a a thing or if it's just the controversy of the day, of the week, in which case we, we tend to take a pass. So you cover more than the constant deluge, to your point. You guys have covered everything from the water crisis in Cape Town, South Africa, to the teacher strike in West Virginia, to the Indigenous Peoples Day on what others also call Columbus Day this year. Yeah. Um, so how do you decide what you're going to cover and what goes into that decision making? Yeah, I think things that excite us are always great, like if we can throw a Mueller parody to Billy Joel, we didn't start the fire, we're, we're going to do it, you know? Another thing is, have we explained it before? And if so, how do we approach it again so it sounds fresh to our listeners? California wildfires are coming every year now. Last year, we made a couple of episodes about them. We wanted each one to sound different. In the first one, you kind of heard a straight-ahead explanation. In the second one, we got a husband and wife who had lost their shared home to one of these fires tell us the story individually, and then we artfully cut them together. So it sounded like you were hearing this story told from two different people, and then kind of in the middle of the story, you realize, wait a second, these are like a husband and wife who lost the same home. In the latest one we did, which was just a few weeks ago, we had a reporter from KQD in San Francisco talk about what it's like to to be a part of a planned blackout, where PG&E, the utility out there, will say, hey, we're cutting off your power. And it, it wasn't told in like a newsy way. It was told in sort of that first person, like, this is what it's like. You wake up and you get an email. You get a notification. Your power is going to be cut off. Now what do you do? You've got kids. You've got to make food. And like we kind of just went through the motions to sort of take you there. And so those are the challenges, I think, that that excite us the most. You had an episode over the summer called What's Up with the Yield Curve. <laughs> yeah. <and> that <laughs> interested me for two reasons. One, the reason why I went to law school and I'm trying to use that in journalism is to help translate complex or abstract things totally. using normal human terms, which lawyers are really good at mixing up. Yeah. And you guys do that, too. You take these abstract or complex concepts and, and help bring humanity to them and explain them that way. But what are the challenges of doing that to people that are used to consuming their news in 280 character bites? Well, that's the trick, right? I mean, that's what we asked ourselves. We really wanted to talk about the yield curve and why everyone said there was a recession coming. Remember when that's what everyone was talking about? There's a recession coming. It's right around the corner. Look at the yield curve. But how do you look at the yield curve without yawning, without going, I don't know, And so the premise of that episode is we are going to talk about the yield curve and not bore you. And I think I may have even said it like right at the top of the show. That being said, if you're looking at your phone and you've got a sea of notifications and one of them is, hey, new episode from today explained about the yield curve. I I don't know. It's it's a 50-50, maybe not even 50-50, whether you're going to listen to that or just move on to the next thing. Right. We try really hard to come up with like fresh, smart witty titles, too, that draw you in. I forget what that one was called. Maybe it was like, what's up with the yield curve? Which is like what people are probably thinking. Like, I don't even know what that is. So hopefully by relating that in the title and the tone of it, you get the sense like, okay, these guys are going to take like an approachable sort of fun, 
tone to this episode about the yield curve. And we take a trip to France and talk about wine in that episode, all to make it sound a little more like something you do understand. Everyone understands that wine eventually gets better with age. And we made like a big metaphor out of that with the yield curve. So, Sean, sometimes things that are really important and vital for people to know are not particularly exciting, (laughs) um, yield curve being an example. And with so many choices out there, how do you pick and choose? And do you ever feel like there are very sad or negative stories that you stay away from? How do you keep an upbeat feeling when there's pictures of kids in cages who have been separated from their parents? Yeah, that's a great example because that's one that we've really struggled with. Not to stay upbeat. There's no upbeat approach to that. But how do we cover this when we're not there, when Vox doesn't exactly have a reporter stationed at the border? How do we make this sound real to our audience instead of just talking about kids somewhere in cages? And I think we've succeeded and we've failed, if I'm being completely honest. I think there's some episodes where... It's a lot of information and it's a lot of policy and it's a lot of conjecture about what might happen, but you didn't really feel it. And then we've had episodes where we talked to David Begno from CBS News, who had just gotten out of one of these detention centers, and he literally walked us through what he had just seen. And even without the tape, even without seeing it, I felt like I was there. And I think our listeners felt like they were there. So I think that's the lesson we learned there. We don't have to be funny about child detention, but we do have to make something worthwhile. And the trick to that one, I guess, was taking people there and just breaking it down to like the most essential human story. What is it like to be in one of these things? How do family members feel about their kids or themselves being detained in such a place? And that worked a lot better. You've now done 400 of these. Tell us your favorite one and give us an example of one where you felt like we just didn't get that. We just didn't explain it in a way that's accessible. Ooh. All right. Um, I'm going to start with the latter. Kenny, you mentioned the the teacher strike. I think we did a couple on the teacher strikes, and one of them, I just think it felt like, and I don't, this is not meant to be disparaging, but it felt kind of like, a surface level NPR kind of, yeah, what's going on? Uh Uh-huh. What happened next? Uh Uh-huh. Okay, great. That's it. And I just, it didn't have feeling. That was such an emotional couple of weeks that I don't know if you all remember, but last year there was like these sort of wave of teacher strikes. And and I, I felt like that one didn't quite have the emotion. It wasn't quite structured right. Like to deliver something that really hits it's got to have structure. It's got to have purpose. It's got to have momentum. And it's so easy when you're doing the sort of daily grind to miss that. So that's when I would say wasn't our best work, but we were still figuring it out. I'm going to give you two that I love because when you've done 400, it's really hard to pick one. So here are two really quickly. Last year, the weekend of the March for Our Lives, I went out and hung out with a kid who was representing a different element of shootings in the United States. He was not from Parkland. He hadn't been a victim of a, of a mass shooting in a high school. He was a kid from Chicago who had been shot 
living his life in Chicago. And and I think this idea of everyday gun violence being sort of forgotten was something that we were trying to focus on in our in our episode. That being said, that was the first half of the episode. The second half of the episode was produced by this kid, uh, Luke Vanderplug, who worked on our show. And he did this great job where he got a Columbine survivor to talk to a Parkland survivor. It was a really collaborative thing with some people at Vox who were pursuing this for the site. And I remember that. Yeah, and, and they just kind of went back and forth trying to process what they'd experienced. And the Columbine survivor almost felt like it was a personal failing that this was still happening in our country. It was an incredible episode. It's called The Survivors, if you want to listen to it. Really proud of that one. I'm going to go for a fun one now. We covered Old Town Road, um, <laughs> as I mentioned. But... Old Town Road is like, you know, it's the song that at this point is actually tired, but I think we'll probably rerun the episode towards the end of the year because it's such an important slice of American culture. I think there will be a chapter in a American music textbook one day dedicated to this song. If people still have textbooks, I don't know, but it was maybe, maybe maybe a Ken Burns uh, documentary. <laughs> I mean, it might reach that level. So Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails just won a country music award. I was going to say it's CMA season, so <laughs> Be- that's timely. Because he's associated with this song, yep. this guy who made like industrial, like gothy, hard rock music. He wrote the sample that you hear in that song, that little banjo sounding thing. That was that was a Trent Reznor instrumental track with his boy Atticus Ross that got sampled by some hip hop producer who posted it for like twenty five dollars, and it got purchased by this kid Lil Nas X who had never even made music before, and he rapped some random stuff about being a cowboy on an old town road, and it became the biggest song in the world. And then they pulled it from the Billboard charts because it wasn't really a country song. And then we dig into that, like who dictates what a country song is or isn't? Who are the gatekeepers? And it turns out that's just a story about race in America. And it's just such a fascinating story that kept getting more and more interesting as we dug into it. And I'm so proud of the episode we made about it. So I actually wanted to talk about a different one of your favorites because you recently, I think, rated your top 10 favorites. That's so you true. put thought into it recently. Yes, that's true. And it was called The Stanford Prison Correction. Talk a little bit about that episode. Not only was it fascinating, but it reflects how you guys approach uh, the news. Sure, yeah. So I got to give credit to my boy Luke Vanderplug, who produced that one, too. Do you, we all know what the Stanford Prison Experiment was? Yeah, but talk about it. Okay, so Our this was this not. was literally an experiment about prison life conducted at Stanford University in the 70s, this doctor there wanted to find out if he could create the conditions that you would find in a prison. And in doing so, whether or not he could create conditions and and study the behaviors of prison guards. Do prison guards treat prisoners humanely? Or are they inclined in such conditions, see them as subhuman? And it got a lot of notice and it's been sort of standard psychology over the years that, oh, that one Stanford prison experiment, you know, they found that even though it was just an experiment, the people who were assigned the position of guards started treating the people who were assigned the position of prisoners inhumanely over time. It's human nature. And and we covered it last year because it turns out that the sort of experiment that's been psychology 101 had started to be debunked. People found out that perhaps the prison guards were encouraged to treat prisoners inhumanely. People found out that maybe prisoners were encouraged to act out so that maybe people would get upset. And there's all these variables that weren't properly spelled out in the study. And 
the way we approached doing this story on our show was to like have these interviews with uh, a Vox reporter, Brian Resnick, who interviewed the doctor who helmed this experiment. And we interspersed our conversation about the experiment and about how it's being debunked with this doctor basically yelling at Brian from their interview. Uh, At one point, he gets very upset that Brian is questioning his methodology. And it's always good radio, good TV when people start yelling and cursing. And uh, and we we delivered. We seem to have failed thus far in this episode. Yeah, I haven't yelled or cursed at anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Let's let's talk about uh, how you approach something like impeachment hearings. It has wall to wall television coverage. It's on the radio. It's on the internet. It is impossible to miss if you want to watch it. How do you differentiate yourselves from everybody else and put on fifteen or twenty minutes? that gets to the essence and leaves your listener satisfied? That is a great question. And, you know, there's all these impeachment podcasts launching. What we tried to do was figure out what exactly people need to take away from this before we sit down and do our interview. Is it that this is a momentous occasion? Was it that something interesting happened here? (laughs) Was it that the Republicans came up with a new argument or that the Democrats had a, a really great approach. There's no way to know until you watch the thing. So the first thing we did is we sat down and watched it. And the whole time we were watching it, we were thinking, okay, what is the thing that we want to deliver our audience? And eventually we figured out, okay, there was one major revelation. So that was something we wanted to focus on in the first half of the show. And the second half of the show was like, okay, the Republicans have been complaining for weeks and weeks and weeks that the Democrats are holding these closed-door hearings, and the public has a right to know what's going on. So, okay, now you're on live TV. The whole country, the whole world is watching. What do the Republicans have? What is their strategy? And it seemed sort of haphazard. It didn't seem like they had one solid argument. It just seemed like they were trying to poke holes wherever they could. Zelensky said nothing untoward happened. There was no quid pro quo. The aid was delivered. Have you ever even spoken to the president? No. Then, like, how are you the star witnesses here? And these arguments sort of danced around the points at hand. And and that's what we wanted to to make sure our listeners understood. And as far as how do we compete with everyone else, we just tried to make the most cogent explanation of what happened and, you know, let the listeners decide. We just made the best episode. Don't worry about it. So, so much of the coverage is based on what the audience wants to hear. If you watched Fox News on any given night versus, say, MSNBC, you'd think you lived on different planets. How do you stay objective? Do you try to stay objective? Where and how is a point of view appropriate? On our show, we try to stay objective. I think Vox has a reputation for being sort of a left of center news organization. I think that's a fair assessment. I think when the president does something that we find to be absurd, we laugh about it. We make an episode about it even. But when the president does something that should be covered by the media, like, say, getting rid of mandatory minimum sentences, which he did last year, we covered that too. We don't want to just talk about things the president does that people find objectionable. We want to talk about things that the president does that people think are good for the country. And we talked about his tax cuts. We had Ezra on to talk about his tax cuts, and Ezra didn't like him. Ezra Klein, founder of Vox. But we covered him, and we covered, yeah, mandatory minimum sentences too. This impeachment inquiry, 
I mean, at the center of it, you've got these career diplomats. I don't know what their political affiliations are. I don't know if they're Democrats. I don't know if they're Republicans. I don't care. These are people who know a lot more than I do, than you do, Joe, than Donald Trump does about diplomacy, about how we should handle ourselves in the world. And they're saying something happened here that was not right, that was wrong. And and so our our take on it is like, let's hear what they have to say. It isn't, let's all go vote for Elizabeth Warren because of what we heard today. It's just, what did they say? What does it mean? How are you approaching uh, the fact that the Democrats have gone from 17 candidates to 20 candidates to who knows how many? I mean, it's, it's a big mess. What are you looking for in the primary process to bring your listeners a unique view? Well, the good news is it's like a year away still, so we can just kind of wait and see. I will say that when we covered these debates, which anything from 10 to 12, 14 candidates are on stage, we try to give people something to take away. Just like how I explained our coverage to the impeachment inquiry, let's give people something that they can chew on. It's the same approach to the debate. So like, yes, a debate happened last night. Yes, they talked about healthcare. Yes, they talked about immigration. But like, what do you need to know? And so on one night, it might be like, why did CNN decide to approach the debate that way? Maybe it's like media criticism. Another night, maybe it's, how is Joe Biden still the front runner? He keeps blowing it at these debates. And we did that too. And another night, it might be like, why are these the issues that get all the coverage and not the any number of other issues? So we always want to make sure that it isn't just like, what happened? Uh-huh. Okay, bye. Like, that isn't Today Explained. Today Explained is what happened and what does it mean? And so... That's kind of our approach to the race right now. I'm sure it'll change as the number of candidates narrow, but I think it's an exciting time for our show and for all shows like our show because there's a lot of these daily news podcasts now. You have many to choose from. Please choose ours. Subscribe right now wherever you listen to podcasts. But I think the question is, what is this show offering? And I think we're all going to define how a daily news podcast covers a presidential election right now because last presidential election, there wasn't a single daily news podcast. So now that we have over 10 to choose from, which is doing something that's worthwhile. So let me wrap up by posing a question that I do to a lot of our guests, particularly those who are in the media or do media criticism. There seems to be this sort of split view of the media right now. There's some people who argue that this is the worst time ever for the media Fox News is like propaganda and the country is split. I'm in the other camp that argues that this is really a golden age, that you have the Washington Post and the New York Times competing and getting a scoop every single night over the last two years. You have stories that you cover that just weren't covered for the last 15 or 20 years because there didn't seem to be enough space for them. How do you view the media landscape And is this a great time to be a journalist or is this a miserable time to be a journalist? Hmm. It's hard for me, Joe, because like I've only worked in media right now. And I started 10 years ago in Washington, D.C. at a public radio station. And I had to work four to five jobs to sustain what was initially just volunteering at WAMU 88.5. And so... This was the thing that I was willing to work four to five part-time jobs to sustain because they weren't paying me yet. 
And once they started paying me, it still wasn't nearly enough money to survive on. So it was still something I was committed to making work any way I could figure out how. So, I mean, I've wanted to do this thing for a very long time. I think I've been inspired by a lot of public media, public TV, public radio, by the mission of what public media does, which is we don't do this for the money. We do this for the service to people because people need to know what's going on. And uh, it's been good to me chasing that mission. I imagine from what I see about what just happened to Deadspin or what happened to Gawker or what happened to Mike, that there have been better times to work in our industry. But then I think about, I mean, there's never been a better time to be a brown man working in our industry. I can say that, you know what I mean? Which, which for the record, I am. I mean, the glory days of, of newsprint when papers made tons of money, they weren't, they weren't papers that represented the viewpoints of, of women or minorities. And I think there is a rich landscape right now of opinion and of perspective that I'm very grateful to be a part of. Whether it's sustainable is another question that I don't think I'm, I'm best fit to answer, but I really hope it is because, gosh, can you imagine going through what we're going through right now in this country, in this world, without the media to tell you how to make sense of it all? I can't. Well, with that, I think that is a perfect way to end, and I wholeheartedly agree. Sean Ramasparam, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. 